1: Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltide. This time, why treating women like men doesn't help women at work, and why women's groups within companies may be a waste of time.
0: The only reason to change it is that it doesn't usually, in any way, improve the overall gender balance of the company.
1: Coming up, a conversation with a longtime advocate of what she always calls balance. Not women's leadership. But first, this episode of the show is brought to you by Write Speak Code. If you're in tech, you know balance is still pretty elusive in that industry. Write Speak Code empowers women in technology. The Right Speak Code conference is taking place in June in Chicago. It's where women in tech can learn to become speakers, thought leaders, and open source contributors. You can sign up for news about the conference at writespeakcode.com. And if your company would like to sponsor the event, the organisers would be glad to hear from you. All the information is at WritespeakCode.com. Aviva Wittenberg Cox is Canadian by birth, but she spent most of her life in Europe. She's CEO of 21st. It's a consultancy that works with companies that want to get equal numbers of men and women at their firms, particularly at the top. You may remember her from a show I did in 2014 called Stop Fixing Women, Start Fixing Companies. I keep up with her through the pieces she writes for the Harvard Business Review. And I wanted to kick off this conversation by talking about a piece of hers I read last year. It was called To Hold Women Back, Keep Treating Them Like Men." I enjoyed it, but I thought the title and the idea that men and women ought to be treated differently was bound to rile some people. Aviva recently moved from Paris to London and we spoke on Skype. She says whenever she speaks at a company or an event, she'll often start by asking everyone in the room if they believe there are differences between the sexes. She says more than 90% of people raise their hands. And then if I
0: ask the men in the room and I usually have mostly men in my corporate work in these sessions, if they understand women, most of them just laugh and shake their heads in despair and say no. And I just kind of point out that don't they think it's a little interesting in 2016 that they're running large multinationals with, you know, at 50 percent, of their workforce are women. And they say they don't understand them in any substantive way or the differences that they might have between men and women. So um, I understand the fear that a lot of women uh, and some men have in in denying gender differences. We've been in that space of denial for a couple of generations with good reason, but I think now we're strong enough to be able to say we are both equal and different.
1: Now, if you're already bristling, she says the differences she talks about aren't differences we're supposedly born with.
0: There's now a lot of research on gender differences and the kind of gender differences that I usually introduce have got nothing to do with you know deeply innate human difference. It's simply that in the way the two sexes have been socialized, are balanced in schools and then balanced in business you end up having very different experiences and expectations. So um, the differences that we usually focus on are pretty simple. It's the issues of career cycles, communication styles, and attitudes towards power and ambition.
1: I was about to jump to the next question, but Aviva wanted to get into this innate thing a bit more.
0: So the nature-nurture debate is worth worth just parking ourselves in momentarily. Um, I am not saying that men and women are innately different, although I think they probably are in a variety of ways, but nor do I think that Chinese and Americans are innately different. The issue is if you actually want to sell to the Chinese or recruit some Chinese into your leadership team, it becomes incredibly important that you understand the language and the culture of the Chinese, right? That's kind of self-evident. Nobody's going to argue that much. But I would say that exactly the same is true for men and women. If you have a male-dominated and male-normed company, which most of us do and have done for a long time, if we want to sell to or recruit women, into our organizations and leadership teams, we need to recognize that they might be slightly different and understand what those differences are and how to manage across them. So I don't think it's necessary that the differences be innate in order for them to impact what we're currently facing in organizations.
1: And you know the numbers. Most of you are listening to this in countries where fewer than 20% of executives are female, and chief executives, far less than that. So one of the differences Aviva was talking about is communication styles. By that, she means the tendency for men to be more direct, to interrupt more, to be more likely to say, I achieved something, where women are likelier to say, we. It's all been well documented. I told her I get in trouble with listeners sometimes and they'll say, you know, what you said was such a generalization. I'm a woman who's naturally direct. I don't fit the female stereotype. Aviva says, well, yes, of course, that's always going to be true. No one is going to fit a stereotype all the time. But companies, they generally rely on one type of leadership style.
0: And if they have a certain number of Typically, or stereotypically masculine characteristics on their leadership styles, they'll find a few women who fit, but they won't be tapping into 100% of the female talent pipeline. So the trouble you're getting into and everybody gets into is nothing that we're saying about gender is true for any one individual. It's just that the statistics show that on the whole, uh, communication styles in companies are normed rather masculine. And on the whole, most women don't feel entirely aligned with that style. That's not exactly revolutionary, right?
1: She says just look at tech companies and how hard they find it to attract and keep women. She was talking to a top manager at a well-known company last year. And he said, we're having trouble finding women who fit the culture. I mean, classic, right? She says that attitude is backwards. But most companies still think that way. They think of the women as being the problem, not their own culture. Contrast that with a Canadian tech startup she wrote about. The young men running it wrote to the women they were trying to recruit, saying, look, we realise we're a bunch of over-educated white guys, and we don't want the whole company to look like us, to think like us. They invited the women to suggest ways to make the culture more inclusive, and they did some research themselves. They now have an almost even split of men and women on staff. But back to that innate discussion for a minute, because it kept rearing its head during our conversation. What you were describing the innate versus nurture argument it's coming up more and more now and i think partly because i don't know how much in europe but certainly here in the us the whole discussion of transgender people has just exploded and that brings up a lot of questions about you know who are we really deep down and some of these more recent studies about the brain and differences in the brain and lack of differences between male and female brains it's it's interesting that it's it's becoming a bigger topic i think of discussion
0: yeah. Listen, I've been accused now once or twice of being overly binary. Is the new is the new uh, black, and I think that's going to be a very dangerous actually orientation for the whole gender space in what we're trying to do, which is simply balance out uh, the masculine-feminine spectrum in organizations, politics, and society. It's uh, the fact that. Of course, every man and woman on the planet has a spectrum of masculine and feminine within them. I think the challenge, and maybe the, the, the gender fluidity movement, will make us more tolerant of what we call any kind of behavioral set. Whatever you call it, whether you call it male or female, masculine, feminine, this, <laughs> that, or the other, uh, the issue is really that the dominant norm happens to be a pretty narrow slice of existing masculinity. And until we broaden that out, it's going to keep a lot of people out.
1: Including some men. It's something I think about a lot, the fact that boys and young men still largely have to live up to this quite macho stereotype of what a man is. It's narrow and limiting.
0: Uh, hugely, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries, it's, and particularly in the U.S. I mean, it's one of the more extremely masculine countries, you know, it's less true in Sweden or, uh, in France where men will be more acceptably entering into, you know, a more feminine side of their internal spectrum. So what we call men and women also is affected by all the cultural norms that we inherit but yeah, no, they're extremely powerful. They're still very active. And unfortunately, we're still um, orienting our children down um, down these paths. And we'll see if this whole gender fluidity movement uh, lets off on kids. But I'm not very convinced from anything I've seen so far that we're going to let gender stereotypes down. It's, it's been a few millennia in the making, so... Um, I know we're quick to adapt, but I'm not expecting anything to happen quite as quickly as we think.
1: I was really interested in what she said about Anglo-Saxon countries being rigid on what a man should be. Aviva works all over the world, so I wanted to know what she sees elsewhere. Being based in the US, I read mostly about US, British and Australian attitudes.
0: I think what's interesting is if you look at the cross-cultural research on all these different things, all the Anglo-Saxon countries are slightly more assertive, competitive, masculine. That you know, This is where capitalism has its root, right? Not all countries are like that. So if you look at the Nordic countries or the Eastern European countries, some of the Asian countries, um, even some of the Latin American countries or African countries, you're going to get a very different So I think what's deforming us a little bit in our own heads and research is a lot of the research comes out of Anglo-Saxon countries, which tend to be quite masculine and where gender balance isn't very necessarily particularly high. So if you go to Sweden or China, Russia or Brazil, it's going to be a slightly different picture.
1: Last time we spoke, she said in some of these countries where she's worked, companies worry they're going to have too many women at the top. It's the women who seem to be more ambitious. It's men they're now concerned about attracting. And she wants to keep other clients thinking about this issue of balance as well, including those in the US.
0: Because if we flip over, which we are in some areas, to becoming more female than male, have we won? Um, We've just been working with a, a company that um, they've been increasing, you know, focused on recruiting more women. So they now are recruiting 75% women at the bottom. And they're still very concerned because they only have like 30% at the top and all their efforts are focused on promoting women. And it never crossed their mind that they might have an issue of not enough gender balance in their earlier career phases until we brought it up and said, well, is this really what you want? because you're going to create a greater imbalance 10 years down the road. And they literally had never tabled that question. So it
1: just shows how quickly we can flip. Finally, I wanted to talk to her about something she keeps coming back to in her writing. You've pointed out that gender at work should not be looked at as a women's issue. And yet so many companies have you know women's empowerment groups women this women that and you point out that sometimes you know often it's women themselves who who they want those groups and they feel resentment if a man shows up say at a at a conference or an event that is dubbed women's yeah so that's a very complicated run right because over the last you know this this is something that's been going
0: on for 20 years or something now progressive companies who believed in gender balancing really did, I think, think that this would help is to put women together and empower them and give them a kick. And, you know, I think that was appropriate in its time. It's just that now we're looking at very different data, very different numbers, and very different impacts. And I think it's a misdiagnosis of the problem. If you're doing all this stuff to what we call fix the women, it's basically that your analysis is there's something wrong with the women and you're going to try and help them adapt to the way the company is run, right? It's just like my, the, the guy earlier saying that women don't fit. Once you find the ones that fit, you'll be all right. And I think that the initial diagnosis is the wrong one. If what you asked instead is what's the matter with our company if we can't attract, retain, and develop what is today 60% of the educated talent pool in the world, you come up with a slightly different answer. It's, well, maybe it requires our organization adjusting to a new reality of the 21st century, which will be much more gender balanced. And how do we do that? And how do we all adjust to this new reality? Well, it means that actually your majority inside your own company needs to adjust and be aware of what's happening. And it doesn't help to isolate the, you know, the group of women that you currently have into a separate ghetto. You actually have to merge everybody together and get them to
1: understand the stakes and what it takes to work across genders. And you say you point out that they should be called balance groups instead. But do you know of any companies that actually have such a thing as a, a balance group that both genders are part of?
0: Yes, I was working with um, HSBC, which is a big bank, uh, very successful. And they I, five years ago were launching their women's network, and I went and they asked me to go and speak. And I suggested they probably wanted to start a balance network instead, and they did. And they now have I think thirty thousand people in this network, and it's very successful, and they're a model for uh, a lot of other banks in the city. So yes, I think the answer is. I do think it's time for women's networks to rebrand, to become much more inclusive and to explore the issues of gender balance together with men so that we can actually have some impact in these companies. Because I think what we can say is after many years of women's networks, um, a lot of companies haven't made the progress they wanted.
1: I got in touch with HSBC's PR department in London. I wanted to check whether their balance network had actually worked, not just whether it was really popular or whether it had grown, but whether it had met the goal it set when it started, to have women fill 25% of leadership positions by 2014. I heard back just as I was putting this show together, the bank said it could not share any data about its diversity numbers or balance network at this time. Back to Women's Networks for a minute. I think part of it is women quite like being in groups of their own sex. Sometimes if they are in a very male-dominated industry, there's something relaxing and comforting about being with their own kind. Do you agree? Absolutely.
0: And I like it. I've, you know, I'm, I'm the founder of the you know. The European Professional Women's Network, I, I'm a huge believer in the power of women's networks. Uh, my only argument is that they have a role to play outside of companies or in you know, across sectors, but they're not very helpful inside any one company for a variety of reasons. And I completely acknowledge the fact, which is one of the sort of tragicomic parts of this debate, is that both men and women love women's networks, right? So women love them because, of course, we love to get together. Women usually get along pretty well, right? Uh, And we share a lot of issues, particularly in male-dominated organizations, and it's helpful to have a place where you feel psychologically safe where you can discuss them. And the problem is leaders, mostly male, like women's networks too because they think they've taken care of, of the gender issue and the women are happy and they've been given a conference or a network or a safe place. So everybody's happy, right? Why change it? The only reason to change it is that it doesn't usually in any way improve the overall gender balance of the company. So if you want to just keep women happy and keep them down, start a women's network.
1: She says if you want to actually change the status quo, make sure the leaders of the company are on board and pushing the effort. That's what you need, not just men signing on as champions and sponsors.
0: It's the way the whole thing is set up right now. It's just doomed to fail, right? So, and everybody is everybody's copycatting everybody else, and so you know we keep repeating the same mistakes rather than checking if it actually worked in the company that we're copying off of. Um, and I think there's enough pressure now that companies feel they have to do something. And because they tend to be fairly task-oriented, they end up loving anything that's action. So let's initiate a lot of activities, initiatives, things we can tick the box and say we did, and we will get a good performance evaluation at the end of the year. It's all the problems with this whole topic is who's doing it, who's accountable, where it sits as an issue. And whether you really want to tap into the huge, powerful business opportunities of balancing an entire global organisation, it has to sit in a completely different way and be run uh, as a strategic priority by your executive team. Not very many companies have yet elected to do that. But don't worry, they will. It's coming. It can't not come.
1: She says the demographics mean change will arrive. The fact that 60% of educated workers are female, companies can ignore it for a while, but she says you can't build a high-performing organisation if you're recruiting and developing people from 40% of the talent pool. That's the broad experience for this time. You can comment on the show on the website or on the show's Facebook page. And please rate and review the show on iTunes if you haven't done that. It helps us get discovered by more people. If you didn't hear my last conversation with Aviva, it's episode 41, Stop Fixing Women, Start Fixing Companies. You can make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Ashley milne Thanks for listening.